Welcome back, Unscript listeners. This is Matt Lynch. I'm co-host with Matthew Bates. We hope that you are enjoying what we're doing here. Matt and I have been having a blast doing this, and because of that, we're going to um, have an episode soon where it's just the two of us talking about questions that have arisen out of the episodes that we've hosted over the last year and also fielding some of your questions and i'd also like to quiz matt a bit on his book he's got coming out salvation by allegiance alone and a few other things and we have probably a special announcement in that episode so you'll have to wait to hear what that is so that's uh that's all exciting stuff coming up soon the episode this week is on human christology in the gospels and our guest is jay daniel kirk and he's written a, a fascinating and controversial book called A Man Attested by God. And we've this is sort of part of a larger series that Matt and I have been informally putting together on Christology in the New Testament. And if you look back through our archives, you'll find episodes with Richard Hayes, Chris Tilling, and Crispin Fletcher Louie. And there's been a, a sort of upsurge in New Testament studies on uh, Jesus' divinity, especially in the Gospels, and which is a a position I'm personally persuaded of, but I found uh, Kirk's book as a critical pushback against allowing Jesus' divinity to do all the heavy lifting in explaining the exalted claims made about Jesus and in explaining some of the more miraculous and amazing things that Jesus did. So I hope that uh, wherever you land on the Divine Christology and Gospels debate, uh, that you hear him out and feel the force of of his challenge, because I I found it really helpful. Um, And and then there are those like Chrisman Fletcher Louie who see a Divine Christology, but also recognize a very high anthropology in the Gospels. In other words, a really high view of what it means to be human embodied in the person of Jesus, and that that's part of what the gospel writers are trying to communicate. Okay, uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. many Christian interpreters of the Bible, reading the Synoptic Gospels confronts them with an astounding range of texts witnessing to the divinity and humanity of Jesus. As proof of Jesus' divinity, many look to Jesus' healings, Jesus' mastery over nature, feeding the 5,000, Jesus rising from the dead and his ascension. In terms of Jesus' humanity, many look at, well, the fact that he got tired that he ate, that he didn't know certain things. In short, the weaknesses bear witness to his humanity and the power to his divinity. But what if this account of things sells short Jesus' full humanity and draws us away from what the synoptic authors were actually trying to communicate about who Jesus is? With us to discuss the humanity of Jesus in the synoptic gospels is Dr. J. Daniel Kirk, author of A Man Attested by God, the Human Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels, published by Erdman's. Daniel, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that was a terrific introduction to the, the problem of the book. So I'm excited about this. <laughs> oh, good. I set it up okay. You did. You did. Let's knock this out I haven't of the screwed part. it up yet. <laughs> Daniel's the author of 
a couple of books on Paul, Jesus and Paul and Jesus, and is the host of his own podcast called the Lectio Cast, which follows the common lectionary to help ministers procrastinate. That's the term, I think, uh, uh-huh. for their upcoming sermons. And he is the Newbegin Fellowship Pastoral Director at the Newbegin House of Studies. So, Daniel, before we talk about your book, I'm wondering if you could uh, describe your journey as a Christian and a scholar and perhaps a bit about how those two things intertwine in your life. Sure. I began my journey as a Christian and a scholar uh, in college. I went to my first couple of years in college, I went to Wake Forest University, which was uh, about you know six or eight years past its affiliation, a formal affiliation with the Southern Baptists. Uh, but they still had a religion requirement in their uh, liberal arts you know, curriculum. So my first semester in college, I took a class called Faith and Imagination with Ralph Wood. It was a class where we read uh, a book, uh, a short primer on Christian theology by Shirley Guthrie, and then we read C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And I just realized that theology was what I loved. So I became a religion major. Uh, Shortly thereafter, I um, heard the voice of God calling me to be a preacher. So I did a lot of things to to gear my life uh, in lots of different ways toward that toward that end, um, working at Christian summer camp, getting involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, taking Greek and Hebrew uh, at state universities, as one does uh, when one is a nerd <laughs> and is going to be a pastor or whatever. So um, I went sh- almost straight from college to seminary. I had a year off in between um, and was pursuing pastoral ministry. And so when I graduated from seminary, I was uh, a week or two short of turning 25. And uh, I don't know if you've ever gone looking for pastoral jobs, but uh, in order to pastor adults, good, don't do that. Uh, In order to pastor (laughs) adults, you generally have to be 30. Like it's this unspoken, sometimes (laughs) spoken and written rule. And so I was like, okay, I'm almost 25. um, So I've got two options. I can either go kill a youth group for the next five years until I'm old enough to pastor adults, or I could go keep doing my nerd thing and get a PhD in Bible and then go be a pastor to nerdy, overeducated white people in a university town or, or something like that. So that was the plan. I, was, uh, I went to Duke to do my PhD in New Testament as I was pursuing ordination and um, with that, that goal of being a pastor in a university kind of town. So uh, things didn't quite work out well. I was in a conservative Presbyterian denomination, and they didn't like some things that I was thinking, and um, thinking the right things was very important for them. So uh, I got to the end of my PhD, and my denomination wouldn't have me. So uh, the the short version of my life story is I became a professor because I couldn't get a pastor job, um, <laughs> which isn't normally the way it works. Usually it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> to tell that to like the 300 people applying for one job, right? <laughs> exactly. I was like, what's the problem? You know, you just go get one of those. Um, so anyway, um, that's the, the curse of being Presbyterian, I guess, or being trying to survive in evangelical circles. Uh, so the uh, I guess that's just to say that uh, throughout all of my work, uh, my own personal like Christian life and my scholarship and my vocation to do my work for the church and with an eye to the life-giving theology for the people of God have all been really wrapped up 
with each other and kind of hard to, to pull apart. Now, w- one question I had uh, just occurred to me. You, you also run a blog uh, right. called, uh, what's the title of your blog? Storied, Where can people find it? Storied Theology. Uh, okay. Yeah, the easiest way to go to find it is just go to storiedtheology.com. It'll redirect you to Patheos, which is where okay. the blog is hosted. Great. And, and I remember somewhere in there, you, you have some, maybe it's like the subtitle of your blog, something about the story-bound God. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Telling the okay. story of the story-bound God. Yeah. Kate, could you explain the significance of that subtitle and what you mean by that? It just has piqued my curiosity. Yeah. I, I think it's a way of saying that uh, the God that we encounter in Scripture is not is not completely free, uh, that by God's own choice, God has um, decided to work within uh, a particular narrative that um, binds God to certain commitments, um, commitments to the world in general, commitments to a p- particular people, commitments to act in in a given way. Uh, so it's, um, it's definitely a sort of a reaction to... Uh, what I think of as a sort of an over-spiritualized, over-philosophized God, um, the the impassable, simple God of Neoplatonism that I, I don't think very well reflects the the act, the character of God as we, we see that character um, depicted in Scripture. So, yeah, I, I, there are... You know, a number of ramifications I think about how how I think about God, what the identity of God is, and how the biblical story uh, feeds those conceptions, um, and that yeah, this is God has chosen to bind God's self to this particular story in this way of doing and being. So uh, uh, it also means that you know, I don't think I think we can say some pretty definite things about God, but not because we have access to God as God is in God's self, but because of because of the story that God has chosen to, to bind God's self to. So I think it gives us just an, an interesting angle and, and leverage for thinking and talking about God and faith. And um, yeah, it, it probably is not unrelated to my desire to do a Christology from below uh, and to, you know, to get into the synoptic gospels and be like, okay, so let's just pretend that it's not yet 451 that, you know, the Council of Chalcedon hasn't made its declarations about Jesus' divinity and humanity and, you know, proto-Trinitarianism and all this stuff. And just ask again, like, if I was reading this story as somebody steeped in Old Testament scripture and the interpretive traditions of early Judaism, what sorts of possibilities are there for me understanding uh, who this character is? Yeah, excellent. And we'll come back to to some of those uh, pieces of the story about God that you've already talked about. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to um, go back to to your podcast for a moment. So you've been running the Electio cast now for about a mm-hmm. year and a half, um, as we talked about. Uh, what what inspired you to develop this podcast? Is this kind of linked to your desire to do scholarship for the church? I mean, obviously it is uh, oriented that direction. But yep. but what was the spark for for that? Um, getting that going. Uh, like so many things that happen in and around homebrewed Christianity, the spark was Trip Fuller going, hey, do you want to do this thing? Uh, and I was like, no, that sounds like a lot of work. And then um, when it became clear that I was going to be moving on from Fuller Seminary, uh, you know, I started thinking about it again and realizing, yeah, this is actually a really great 
um, way to continue engaging scripture regularly, teaching regularly uh, with you know, a really direct eye toward the church. And, you know, and that's, I hope that the the ways that I'm cultivating a holistic biblical theology uh, will be life-giving for the church. And here's an opportunity every week to, you know, to help a couple thousand people think through the passages that are, you know, that are what there is their palette for that coming Sunday and to, to give them some, some shaping for their, their message. So, you know, I, one thing I, I do think a lot about, and it's, it's why I blog and other things is, uh, is just reach. Like how can, what, uh, what's the ways that the, the work that I do can be most significant. And, you know, I can, spend seven years writing uh, a tome about Jesus' humanity, and, you know, maybe after a year, uh, a thousand people will have will have bought it. Uh, or I can write a 500-word blog post, and by the end of the day, a thousand people will have read it. Or, you know, I can do a weekly podcast, and, you know, one or two thousand people can hear it and be influenced by that as they in turn preach to 50 to a few hundred people. Uh, and you know those are I just feel like those are good um, good metrics for uh, the the value of the you know the work that I'm that I'm putting out. Um, let's talk about your book, A Man Attested by God. Uh, first of all, congratulations on on the publication of this book. It's it's no mean writing project. It it weighs in at six hundred and thirty eight pages. Uh, <laughs> hey, you said and, weighs in. I actually thought I should go grab my my kitchen scale and find out what yeah. <laughs> what the weight of this thing is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a, a something to be used for self defense. Like the corner <laughs> of a corner of a book uh, is is, hey, is you know has, it's, has it's force not to it. Douglas Campbell's you know righteousness of God or whatever. No, you know, it's, it's not. It's, it's, yeah, it's, fair it's, enough. Come on, come on. Yeah, yeah, a mere pamphlet by comparison. Pamphlet. I'm no Tom Wright. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one volume. So, so what what kicked off this project? How how did you start? thinking, hey, I want to, we've ignored the humanity of Jesus, or at least its full significance, mm-hmm. uh, in as scholars and in the church, perhaps. Yeah, I, so the, the background of it is my own history of reading the Synoptic Gospels. I grew up in the church, and the I think a very simplistic way of of understanding the gospel for me was that, you know, there's certain things that we have to believe. And at the core of the things we have to believe about Jesus is that Jesus is God. And this narrative is, uh, you know, there's a couple different ways that this narrative is perpetuated. One, of course, is various passages from Paul, um, you know, Romans 10, Romans Road, that whole thing uh, that, you know, I had, I had licked, um, you know, just various evangelistic sermons. I was in a sub- moderate Southern Baptist context, so I heard a lot of those. Um, but also, uh, John's gospel works really well as believe the right things about Jesus, specifically that Jesus is divine uh, in order to be saved. So uh, I think that became my grid for just for reading you know, these biblical stories. And I didn't like the synoptic gospels at all. Like, they just they just seemed like... I don't know, bad stories that didn't, that were really hard to get the right point out of, and that all said the same thing. Uh, yeah. So, so, so it was sort of a situation of Paul, I have loved, but the synoptics. Exactly. Was it kind of like that? It was exactly <laughs> okay. like that. I, I remember like being in seminary and a, a friend just sort of passively said, you know, just in passing, saying, "Well, yeah, I mean, I love the Gospels, but you know," and then he's going to talk about how cool it was to study Paul, and I was like, "Do you love the Gospels?" Like, 
why? Why would you do that? Um, and and so what what happened was through a couple of things. One, I think, uh, well, one I know for sure was um, reading through uh, the seed was planted through an article that one of my seminary professors wrote on. I think it was called Ecce Homo, and it was in the, the Westminster Theological Journal, and. Um, that's my way of like cloaking my shame that I went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, so, but but it, a a good man wrote a good article called Ecce Homo, and it was about basically it was about Adam Christology in the New Testament. So it was more of a, a wide ranging New Testament, you know, Jesus as the man kind of article. Uh, so you know, I think that was probably somewhere in the back of my mind, and then. Um, Reading Jesus and the Victory of God, uh, you know, I read it now and I realize that I think there's a lot more nod, nod, and wink, wink toward a divine Jesus. But it just got me thinking about these stories as the story of just Jesus as Messiah. Like, take apart, like, separate out Christ and Messiah from divinity and just start thinking about these stories as Jesus as God's anointed coming to fulfill God's promises, redeem and rescue God's people. And it, so it put me down this tr- track of um, reading the stories and listening with a different set of questions, and all of a sudden the stories actually made sense, uh, and they uh, they seemed to, to fit together just as, as narratives so much better. So my own experience was that it was when I set aside this expectation that the story is about disclosing a divine Jesus that the stories actually made sense and became fruitful for me. So I'm getting excited about that. And then uh, I start looking around and realizing that all of the Christian New Testament scholars are starting to argue for more and more divinity in these stories. And I'm like, no, no, you master, there's death in the pot, you know, um, not, not that. Uh, and I think that the last straw for like, I've got to write this book might've been reading Simon Gathercole's, um, the preexistent son. And I just found all of the, uh, I, at the moment, I think I found it crazy-making. I went back and reread it. I was like, okay, there's no reason anybody should go cra- get crazy reading this book. Um, but I just disagreed with almost all of it. And so I was like, okay, I need a, uh, a different—I need to, to really contribute uh, a different posture uh, and paradigm into this, uh, into this uh, place. And um, yeah. So, so as an outsider to New Testament studies, could you just sort of briefly summarize Gathercole's pre-existent son and and explain like what what were his primary uh, arguments in that, and then where you disagree? Yeah, uh, maybe. Um, there's well, I have, <laughs> or just I have, a, a few of the main. Yeah, points, I, have, I have a few perhaps. charms. One of them being I never remember anything I read. Um, the other is a, yeah, I probably haven't read half the books I should. This is great things as a New Testament scholar, but. Um, uh, let me just set the background a little bit. Uh, Gathercold does a little bit of building on the work of Richard Balcom and uh, Larry Hurtado, uh, even though he he tries to argue for a different for some different angles. But their work is part of his. So let me give the bigger picture there. Um, I, I I put Larry Hurtado and Richard Balcom into the same category just simply by this: they both advance arguments in favor of early divine Christology, based on um, an argument that goes, there are certain things that an early Jewish person would only say about God. 
uh, or that they would only treat a certain person, treat God in a certain way. The early Christians said these things or ascribed these things or performed these actions to Jesus. Therefore, um, what we see in it's in those descriptions and actions and attributes that we see the early Christians narrating their claim that Jesus is the God of Israel. Um, so that's the, the the basic framework of the argument. So it's it's basically in terms of titles ascribed to Jesus or, or language ascribed to Jesus and actions that Jesus performs that are only God, only Yahweh actions or only Yahweh attributes given to him. Therefore, Jesus is divine. That's the basic argument, right? Right. And, and in Hurtado's okay. case, his argument is about worship. And, and not just like bowing down, but, you know, the holistic mm-hmm. idea of the worship of the people being framed around and in and, and through the identity of Jesus. Um, the Lord's Supper, baptism, singing hymns, gathering in his name, uh, all of those things. You know, that it's, it's a holistic thing, so um, not to go over simplistic. So um, that uh, and you know, for, for Balcom, there's um, God's creation, God's unique sovereignty over the world, um, put on display, and God o- o- alone sitting on the throne, um, bearing the divine name and receiving worship. So th- those are the cluster of things. Uh, so, uh, so that's that's kind of the I think the um, Balcom calls that divine identity Christology, where you know there's these things that are indicative of God's unique identity. Those things are ascribed to Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is somehow sharing in this divine identity. Um, so, um, that is, I would say arguments to that effect are one component of Gathercole's argument. The, perhaps the most, um, unique contribution that he makes is putting forward the argument that the I have come state, um, plus an infinitive statements, uh, you know, I have come not to this, but to, you know, okay. not, not take off it to heal, um, that those are indications of a being that has come from heaven, from the presence of God to earth uh, in order to perform a mission. Um, Hence pre-existence. So that's, that's, exactly. the, that, that's the goal of that argument is to say Jesus, when he says, I have come, is, is not only described as pre-existent, but actually self-consciously pre-existent. Is that the idea? Yep, exactly. Exactly okay. so. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, so I think there's a, there's a couple ways that that argument falls down. Uh, the idea of being sent by God and coming from God uh, is fairly ubiquitous in um, in prophetic identity in the Old Testament. You know, the the famous Isaiah, you know, who will I send? Who will go for me? You know, I said, and Isaiah says, "Here I am, send me, Lord." Right. So you know, to be sent by God is often to be sent on a mission by God. Uh, and specifically in the Gospels, um, there is uh, a, a place where um, Jesus says of John, right? John came eating and drinking, and uh, I mean, John came, you know, fasting, and uh, and then I came eating and drinking, and you said, you know, look, uh, tax uh, a glutton and, and a sinner. So, um, you know, I think that Jesus parallels his own coming with John the Baptist, which is a, a prophetic coming, somebody being sent on a mission. So that's getting a little bit into the weeds, but uh, yeah, so there was a, a holistic project there. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't remember if this was in Gathercole's book or if it was simply in some other and later writings that he did on the, the divine Christology piece, but 
um, you know, one place that I find one place that I do find a little bit troubling in his work is the idea that the resurrection is a disclosure of Jesus' divine identity. Uh, I, I think that the theological position that Jesus' resurrection is a disclosure of his divine identity is disastrous for Christian hope. Um, if, if Jesus is raised from the dead because he's God, where does that leave us? Yeah, uh, uh, without hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You better become God quick if you want to um, to participate in the resurrection of the dead. Mm. Would he? F- yeah. Well, that's a that's an interesting way of framing that because the the premise there is, I mean, how, how would you separate out a particular act in the life of Jesus as not human? Like there can't there can't be a, a kind of uh, act in Jesus' life that is apart from his humanity, right? Well, um, well, and that's a that's a great. I mean, you you've said something that's that's very significant, which is, you know, everybody when you, you know, when when you put them in the, you know, in in the uh, you know the soundproof booth and ask them, you know, what is who is Jesus and what is the Orthodox Christology? They, everybody's going to say you know, everybody in in quotation marks, Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? But then when you come to the text, what are you interpreting as the the disclosure? What about Jesus' identity is being shown in this moment and in this action? And we have somehow created a uh, an interpretive grid and an interpretive culture, as, as you said in the introduction, where we— um, we separate the humanity from the divinity in order to explain things that Jesus does. So in the first conflict narrative in Mark's gospel, which is the healing of the paralytic, right, the people, uh, you know, they ask, you know, Jesus says, when the guy comes down, your sins are forgiven. Uh, so the scribes go, oh, who is this who can forgive sins? You know, uh, God alone can, can forgive sins. Yeah, and it's called blasphemy there, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. This fellow blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, and Jesus says, well, I'm going to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You know, I say to you, rise, take up your mat, and go home. Um, so the, you know, the easy answer is, well, the scribes that know Jesus was God, and that's what he's showing here. Um, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to show you that God, that I'm God incarnate and I have authority to forgive sins. He says, I'm going to show you the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, like, why do we—there's like, this temptation to go, yeah, the scribes are right. What we're seeing here is Jesus' divinity being put on display. Um, where does that—even even in just—if you're going to take that reading, where does that leave Jesus' humanity? Um, and— I mean, then there's a lot of other questions you can ask, like, should we actually believe, think that the scribes are, are good interpreters because they're the bad guys in the story? Um, then you know, there's other things you might ask, like, John the Baptist has already come with a baptism that forgives sins. Uh, there's later on, Jesus tells the, the disciples, you know, you guys need to forgive uh, and when you're praying. And then if you want to go old Johannine, at the end of John's gospel, he gives his disciples power to to forgive sins uh, as well. So I mean there's there's a lot of places to go to to deconstruct the scribes understanding of the narrative. Yeah. And, but and, I, and there's there's also the human mediated temple system of forgiveness for sins. And so right. that's that's um it, it is 
I think it's true in the sense that, that God is the one who forgives the sins, but who is it who is, through whom does that power flow? And in the case of the temple, which probably was the primary offense there, right? That he was he was taking on a an action that otherwise belonged to the temple mm-hmm. system. Is that is that kind of how it works? Or yeah, yeah, I think so. I, and so I, I think that's exactly right. So right, the point is yes, only God can forgive sins, which means that if Jesus can forgive sins, God must have given him this surprising delegation of power. Hmm. So on, um, on, on page five, you, you state that the overall approach to your study is to demonstrate that the data from the varied gospel narratives fit within the paradigm that you propose, which is namely the idealized human paradigm. So we haven't touched on that uh, yet. So I'd, maybe it would be helpful if you describe what you find as uh, a convincing alternative paradigm for reading the Gospels, uh, and specifically what you mean by idealized human figures. Yeah. Um, so uh, idealized human figure, I, I wanted to create a category, a, a big basket to throw a bunch of stuff into that um, I knew a little bit and suspected there would be more and found there was more when I started doing the research um, from early Judaism, including the Old Testament. Uh, so I describe uh, idealized human figures as human beings of the, the past, present, or idealized future for Israel uh, that are depicted in usually texts, but sometimes other ancient artifacts as um, either uh, performing the actions or receiving the ascriptions or being given the attributes that might otherwise be reserved for God alone. Uh, and often they're doing this in a representative capacity for the people. Uh, in other words, there are people who are shown to be like super people, uh, perfect people in some way, or, or not necessarily perfect, but um, they uh, they are given a, a God-like character that would surprise us if what we thought that the text had to do was uphold a certain vision of strict monotheism where God is kept entirely separate from the world as a whole. Um, so let me give a let me give an example of this. Um, some of the some of the ideal idealized human figures, um, you get a little bit of uh, of that around the character of Adam in in different Jewish traditions. So uh, there is a, a great story um, that's sometimes called the, the life of Adam and Eve. And what happens in this story? It, it's a it's a story of creation and fall and, and the final judgment as well. And so uh, what happens is that uh, you know Adam and Eve are. Or like they they're griping to Satan about why he why he tempted them and you know why why he had yeah, to yeah fair to, enough to yeah come on what well why did you have it in for us <laughs> and so he tells the story about what happens with them and that when they were first created um, the the angels had been created and then God created Adam and uh, commanded that all of the angels bow down and worship Adam because he uh, bore the very likeness of God. So it's taking that image and likeness idea and saying that this is like the divine this is this is the physical manifestation of the likeness of God. So all you know, all the angels of God need to bow down and, and worship him. Right? 
echoes of Hebrews, maybe, you know, Hebrews echoing the Psalms there. Um, and uh, Satan says, no, I, I was created first. He should bow down and, and serve me. Uh, and so then God's like, no, you need to bow down. And Satan says, no. So Satan gets kicked out of heaven for refusing to, to worship this, this Adam figure. So, I mean, there's a lot that's going on here. Um, but, uh, the, I think one of the most important things is the idea that Israel's, um, monotheism must always manifest itself in what people might call monolatry, where only God is worshiped. That, that, it, it take, I think that whoever wrote this would say, yes, that's true, and the way that the angels were to worship God was to recognize God's very face and, and worship it here in, in the human being. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a, a blowing up of uh, the Genesis 1 story, right, where humanity is created in the image and likeness of God. Right? That means they look like God. And their purpose is to rule over the world. So, you know, these, that thing that Richard Balcom says is God's unique purview, God actually delegates to humanity. Uh, it shows us uh, that maybe our gut instinct that there's this divine, that there's this um, celestial pecking order, which goes God, angels, humanity. Maybe that's not right. Maybe the, the ideal pecking order is God, humanity, then angels because of, you know, this exalted status that, that humanity has. So it's a story that kind of gets into a lot of our theological assumptions, and, and it, it narrates a story that, that, that pulls them apart, um, both in our understanding of what, uh, of, uh, of who God is, uh, but more specifically in our understanding of what a perfect human might be um, and what a perfect human might do, what a perfect human, what place a perfect human might play in the in the story of the cosmos. Um, and so uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, I think this, uh, you know, I, I, the longest chapter, I think, is the, the Judaism and Old Testament chapter, which is, you know, almost 100 pages or more, maybe more than 100 pages. Uh, and you know, I'm, what I'm just trying to do is demonstrate this barrage of, um, of potential for what a human could do. So, you know, when we come and we're like, well, there's certain things God can do. Look, here's Jesus walking on water. Here's Jesus feeding 5,000 people. It's really simple if we have this binary of God or just a mere crappy human to go, oh yeah, God. But once we've got this other you know, massive framework of possibilities, um, there's a lot of space to go, you know, somebody who was everything Adam should be or everything that the craziest, you know, prophetic psalm thought David was going to do, like that's the kind of story of Jesus that's being told here. Um, yeah. And, and I, w- I would say just for, for people listening that it, whether or not you agree with the conclusions that Daniel comes to in this book, that chapter on idealized human figures is definitely worth the price of the book. Because I, I don't think anyone has brought together material on what humans can become in mm. Old Testament and Second Temple Jewish literature uh, like that. So that was just a fabulous chapter, really helpful overview. Thanks. Um, let me say one more thing, because you know, we're talking about idealized human figures, and I'm talking about how this um, Jewish framework like gives me a, a framework for reinterpreting Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels as idealized human. Uh, and what I'm not saying in the book, I'm not saying in the book that Jesus is like just 
being depicted as any old schmo, uh, or that it's it's and it's not like a Galilean peasant Christology. Um, Jesus is being depicted as unique in these stories, as uniquely drawing together the time of God's eschatological fulfillment, of uniquely drawing together God's promise of uh, a son of man who's going to crush the nations, um, the promises of a Davidic Messiah, you know, the um, the promises of a suffering and resurrection. So. Um, with the conviction that he's the Messiah, the conviction that this is the time of eschatological fulfillment, um, it, it's being shown that Jesus is the man uh, and maybe even the inaugurator of a new humanity and a second Adam, although um, that's not as clear here as it is in like Paul's letters, for instance. Mm. Um, but yeah, yet- that, that, that's helpful. And that actually gets at one of my questions, which was, uh, let's see if I can frame this right. One of the questions I had was, is what's extraordinary about Jesus in the Gospels the fact that the he as Messiah is a suffering Messiah, uh, or is it that he is so exalted um, as a human? In other words, is is his level of exaltation extraordinary and his suffering extraordinary? Or is it, or is the surprising thing, the thing that that gets everyone scratching their heads, the fact that a Messiah would suffer? Yeah, does uh, that question make sense? It does. I, I think it's both and. Uh, and again, Mark is super easy to to pursue this in because in Mark the the ministry of Jesus is so clearly divided in half um, from before the confession of Peter and the first passion prediction and after. So in chapters one through eight of Mark, uh, Jesus' power is being put on display. Um, Almost all of his—there's only like one exorcism and one healing after the confession of Peter um, and the first passion prediction. So the first eight chapters is where you get the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, uh, you know, the healing of the paralytic, the uh, you know exorcisms in, uh, in synagogues, and uh, the, the garrison demoniac. So you get um, this very rich palette of healing, uh, healing stories that are—where you know, I think— what's uh, what's astounding here uh one the the range of power and authority that's being uh embodied by Jesus that he has authority over people's bodies he's got authority um over the 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 words of God and how to understand scripture he has authority over spiritual agents that are hostile to human flourishing uh, he's got authority over the identity of the community uh, so that he he is the one who determines what the family of God looks like by the people that follow him so there's it's this astounding level of authority embodied in this backwater prophet from Galilee uh, uh, hillbilly hick um, from Galilee. Um, so I think that all of that is like, that's an astounding juxtaposition. And then, you know, so, so all of that takes like eight chapters of that is enough for when Jesus says, who do you say that I am for Peter to say, you're the Messiah. And, um, and then I love Mark. Jesus is like, okay, now shut up. Now here's what it means. He, you know, he, he, he leaves, he, he never takes that Christ title himself. He just says, 
the son of man. So he's going to reinterpret what Peter says under the son of man rubric and says, the son of man is going to have to be rejected, handed over, suffer, die, and be raised again on the third day. And Peter says, no, 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 no. And Jesus says, yes, 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 yes. So then the, the surprise of the second half of the book is that all of this power and strength was not the prelude to um, overpowering Rome. It was the prelude to submitting to the power of Rome um, and entrusting himself to, to God to, to raise him from the dead. Yeah, that's that's a helpful helpful way of putting it. So, and and what was behind my initial my, my question there about what's amazing about Jesus is it is it just the suffering or is it also the extraordinary exaltation? Uh, what was behind that was you were critical in the book of people who say that in their descriptions of Jesus in the Synoptics there's a more than quality to him that there's something more going on here and by that the subtext is that he must be divine right, right? so so in, in in your reading there is a more than like th- he, there's something extraordinary and even the level of his exaltation but that points toward what a human pe- can become rather than divinity is that right yeah yeah and, and okay. it points toward the particular kind of human that he is which is this you, this eschatological Messiah who truly is given authority over all things. And, you know, I want to say a couple things about this this point that you've just brought up uh, where, yeah, I'm critiquing people who say, you know, there's more than. Um, I just invite you um, um, generally, and then, of course, as soon as I say that, like, I think Richard Hayes' recent book is an exception because he's more, he's just bolder about all these things. Um, but generally speaking, when you read books, whether it's a commentary or you know, some of Richard Balcom's work on Mark or um, to a certain extent Larry Hurtado's stuff, notice how vague that language is from the scholars. Like They'll, they'll say things like, there's something more than, and this is, you know, these are the kinds of things that only Yahweh would do. But there, there's always this hesitancy to draw the conclusion. The, they're pointing toward the fact that Jesus is Yahweh. It's like, that's, I feel like the rhetoric of the work is that somebody who's not a careful, trained biblical scholar is going to say more um, and that they're being led to but the scholar kind of feels dirty about it because they know the text doesn't actually say it. So, uh, you know, I feel like it's leading people to draw conclusions that, generally speaking, the biblical scholars aren't going to be willing to say uh, as strongly. And, I mean, somebody might come back to me and say, well, that's just because that's the ethos of the academy, that if you actually say it, you know, you'll you'll be ridiculed or written off. I'm like, well, if you're an academic and you've got a, and you've proven a point, then— Prove your point, um, but don't let this point that I think is ultimately not substantiable kind of influence and shape how other non-scholars are reading uh, and drawing conclusions that that won't hold. So, you know, I think I the water walking is a great example where um, you know Jesus walks out to the, the disciples on the sea, uh, or you know, or when he's in the boat asleep. You know, either one uh, where you've got this this power over the wind and the waves, which is, that's God's power, right? The, the Old Testament is replete with creation stories and psalms that talk about creation and and the exodus, which, you know, the point is, God can take even the, the, the powers of watery chaos and drive them back and 
create safe space for God's people, right? That's, um, you know, Chaos Conf 101 uh, in, in the ancient Near East. Uh, and, and that's and that's right. Uh, and, you know, God's footsteps on the ocean, you know, this, this poetic text in Job. Um, so, you know, they'll allude to all that and be like, see, Jesus, when they say, who is this that the wind and waves obey him? Like, there's... You know, there's something more going on, you know, who indeed in light of all this. I'm like, okay, yeah, there's something more going on that they didn't know. All right. And so what pointers does does Mark give us to answering the question of Jesus' identity? Well, he says Jesus is the Son of God. Um, he says that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, Jesus himself claims to be Son of Man. Okay, all of those are idealized human sorts of categories. Um, and what if we go to a, a psalm like, um, I always get my psalm numbers mixed up, 86. Psalm 45, I, I think, you, is one, one of the ones you talk about. Yeah, Psalm 45 is the, one. Um, there's okay. another, it's uh, it's not Psalm, Psalm 89, is it Psalm 89? Psalm 88 is the death psalm, the, so, right? So, yeah, Psalm yeah. 89 is the Davidic, co- the yeah. Davidic covenant psalm. There we go, yeah. Psalm 89, the Davidic covenant song, <laughs> psalm, uh, where God, it's, it's this... Um, you know, God, you're awesome. You rule over everything. You're the king, right? That's the first third of the psalm. The second third of the psalm is, oh, and you've you've appointed your servant David, who gets to be king over us, and he's he's going to call out to you. You're my God, my rock. You know, the the my father, the the rock of my salvation. So you get this sonship, uh, you know, Davidic kingship language, and then you you in the voice of God to this Davidic king. Uh, God promises, I will set your your hand upon the rivers, your right hand upon the waters. Right? It's a, a an indication that the authority God has as king of the universe is so vested in the Davidic king that there's a promise even over like the the watery chaos um, in Psalm 89. Of course, yeah. You know, spoiler: the last third of Psalm 89 is so. How come we don't have a Davidic king? You're you know, come on, God, make good on it. Um, so you know, what's going on in Mark 4 or Mark 7? Is it, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink, this is God, you know, kind of hidden in this human figure? Or is it, yes, only God can do this, and God is now sharing this awesome power with this Jesus? Wow, who is this guy? You know, more than a prophet, um, son of God in a way that, um, you know, is uh, just— uh, in a way that when you look at him, you see what God is like, like first humanity. Uh, in a way that, like David, he's been authorized to embody the rule of God over the earth. So and those are some of the, the kinds of, of moves that I want to make to say, um, yeah, there's, there is an extraordinarily high Christology going on, but the idea that that is a divine... Christology and sort of a proto-Chalcedonian sense, uh, I I don't think has been established. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And, and one of the um, questions then that that came up for me, and well, actually, before I get to some of the objections, what you've just said reminded me of something that I think it was N.T. Wright said years and years ago that when he was talking about Jesus walking on the water, he said, "What if Jesus walks on the water because he's human?" And I remember that that always made me think, like, wow, I, you know, I'd never thought of 
of his humanity in those terms, like, because I haven't seen someone walk on the water, and it mm. just seems out of, out of bounds for what for what a human would do. But this, and, and this gets at a sort of key plank in your argument that we haven't really spelled out here. So I, I sort of mapped it out for myself. So I'll just read out what I, how I mapped out your argument. And basically, it's something like this. If we go all the way back to Genesis 1, we have an image of humanity that Adam is created to be like God and as a son of God, and, and, and he, he's an image bearer. So, of course, he's going to do things and uh, in a way that reflect God, who God is. So Adam is a son of God. He's like God. Later, Jewish literature then picks up on this likeness between Adam and God as image bearer and has this idealized Adam figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore a godlike figure. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus in the Gospels, as a second Adam, he's reclaiming what humanity is supposed to be, and therefore he's mm-hmm. like God. And so th- th- this is where this is where it gets confusing then for a reader, I think, when we come to the Gospels expecting w- with a very low anthropology, right. then an- anything that's extraordinary it gets automatically put into the God bucket right. because because our view of ourselves and what a human is or even can become yep. it is is so low. Uh, and, and this is where I think we have to go back to Genesis 1, as you, as you do in the book, in a really helpful way and remember what a human is supposed to be. And that's a God image bearer, a ruler in creation, and, and one who has power and authority uh, of a king. So Yeah, and, so that's... And that's- and that's to say that, and, and and maybe what yeah I probably didn't say in the book. Maybe I should have, or maybe I put it in the conclusion or something. Like you know that instinct that when you're seeing these things, you're seeing God. Like maybe that's not wrong because yeah, that's that's what humanity is supposed to be. Humanity is supposed to be the creature that looking at which you see God. <laughs> that's yeah. what that's what image and likeness means. Um, yeah, and you know, like Israel when they were given the law, right? In Deuteronomy, you know, what what the aspiration is, you know, the nations around you will say, What you know, what great and awesome, you know, people is this who has a great and awesome God who gives them a great and awesome law like this. Right. The idea is that looking at Israel, you get a sense of what their God is like. Um or um Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before people that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven, right? Like the glory light of God is reflected in God's people when God's people do the God-like things. Um, So, yeah, I think that that's a good instinct. We just have to figure out what the connotation is. Sure. And so I want to move on to some of the uh, possible objections to your thesis, which you I think you anticipated every single one I could think of in the book, and uh, except for one, actually, but the <laughs> one of the um, things, just to as a caveat, though, is is that you aren't saying, and I think this is important to say, that you, that Jesus isn't divine, and you're not saying even that the New Testament doesn't claim Jesus to be divine. Your, your claims about the Synoptic Gospels specifically, so just we just have to hear it in that in that framework. Right. Um, so there, there are a couple things. One has to do with external evidence related to the the synoptic gospels. So so John, Mark, and Luke are 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 two primary companions of Paul on his missionary journeys, 
and they're both gospel writers. And uh, at least on my reading, Paul has a divine Christology in, in his writings. So what are the chances that Paul's divine Christology would leave no imprint then on Mark and Luke, and hence Matthew? Yeah. Um, well, I think the first thing would be that I, I wouldn't share the, um, the premise that uh, Mark was written by John Mark and Luke was written by um, Paul's traveling companion. Um, it could be uh, on the Luke account, but uh, generally the, the Gospels and Acts are anonymous. Um, you know, there are later ascriptions of, of authorship to them. Uh, so I'm, I, I hold that anonymity to, to be my, my starting point. But you know, I think that the question nonetheless of how, um, uh, how would a, a church that was already st- steeped in high Christology, uh, with, in divine Christology, end up telling Jesus stories that, that don't reflect that. Uh, a couple of things I would say in response. One is, uh, there may be, a, I think there are a couple of hints of divine or pre-existence Christology in Paul, but I think that for Paul, um, if you didn't have any divine Christology and you're trying to read Paul, or, um, or if you're trying to do it with a divine Christology, or no, let's just, if you don't have divine Christology, all you have is uh, an idea of an of an Adam Christology. I think that you make better sense of Paul um, in 99% of the the passages that you might look at. That um, Adam Christology for Paul is more central. It um, it controls his arguments in a way that divine Christology doesn't. Uh, so. Um, yeah, so I, I think that I think you could hang out with Paul for a long time and not hear a whole lot about a pre-existent Christ, but you couldn't hang out with him for five minutes and not hear about Christ as, uh, in some way, this uh, idealized human figure. Um, and so that's that's the one thing that that I'd say I, I have um, some differences about Pauline Christology than again than some uh, recent uh, interpreters. So that that's one thing. But um, there's still uh, the question. Um, the Interestingly, um, at, at SBL this year, there was a review panel of my book, and Larry Hurtado was on the panel. Uh, and, you know, he's a, you know, a champion of early high Christology. One thing that I noticed when I read his Lord Jesus Christ book, though, was when he went from Paul to the Synoptic Gospels, all the language about Benetarian patterns of worship and the shockingly early state of high Christology, it all dropped out when he was talking about the Synoptic Gospels. And in that conversation, we came to the point where he was like, oh, actually, I think that the Synoptic Gospels are in some ways doing a very similar thing to what you think is needed right now, Daniel, which is they are in a context where the divinity of Jesus is being so you know, assumed or the high Christology is so prevalent that they're wanting to tell Jesus stories to reground Jesus in Galilee. So at the end of the day, uh, I think he actually agrees with my reading of the Gospels as readings of the Gospels, uh, so that you know, he has a, sort of a historical reason in his understanding of what's going on in the early church for why this kind of human, exalted human Christology would be the pervasive Christology of these particular books. Um, hmm. 
So, and and I, I, I think that's a point that, again, if even if someone disagrees with your conclusion, that takeaway that the Gospels are putting forth a very, a very high anthropology is probably something that anyone could do with hearing. Yeah, um, and that's, uh, I, I think that my, you know, whenever you write a book, you, of course, the the lights out goal is that everyone in the world will believe you and, um, you know, you, your book will be enshrined forever. They'll just, you know, it's revelation, you know, Jude revelation, a man attested by God, right? This is going to be the new, um, the, the new Bible. But um, short of that, um, the idea that people would agree with my positive proposal that Jesus is being depicted as an idealized human figure and that in every story we're seeing this exalted, you know, Adam Christology, David Christology, whatever, um, even if, even though people will still continue to say there is divine Christology peeking through as well, um, if, you know, if this book serves to bump up the general consciousness of the, the heights of biblical anthropology as embodied in Jesus, uh, if it will give us something more positive to say about Jesus' humanity than um, we suck so he had to come and suck like us so he could die, you know, like, thank you, Anselm, um, then, uh, then, then I think the, the book will have, will have done a, a good service to people. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, let, let me just raise a, a couple other points just to talk about specific texts that, that could be particular counter-arguments. You've mentioned already the walking on water incident. And one of the things about this passage, and, and Hayes brings this up in his book uh, from Mark 6, it, there's, a, there's a, <clears throat> a significant convergence of God-like features in this story. And uh, I just wonder, I'd, l- I'd like to hear your comment on it. So first of all, you have this idea that, that God's walking on the sea, and you mentioned the Job 9 illusion. So it, it, it talks about God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And then Job 9 also goes on to then say, look, he passes by me and I did not see him. Uh, and, and that, again, like this, this mention in Mark of, of yep. Jesus about to pass them by, but then he actually is revealed to them. And then there are uh, possible allusions in there to Exodus 33, where God's glory passes by Moses. And then you have the ego a me, I am, which is, again, a divine self-declaration. So you have, you have what to me seemed like a, a very high concentration and convergence mm-hmm. of Yahweh-like features here that could be read as signaling, especially in a narrative mode that this is Yahweh among us. Yeah, I, I, I think there are important things to, to take um, piece by piece. Um, with the, let's start with the ego in me. Um, one thing that I think a lot of folks maybe don't realize is that um, in one of the differences uh, between the Hebrew and the Greek of Exodus 3, where Moses is engaging with God and, and all this, is you know, if you're reading the, the Hebrew and getting a translation of that into your um, into your English Bible, it says, you know, I am that I am, tell them that I am has sent you, uh, is what God says to Moses. In the Greek, it says, uh, ego emi um, uh, ho-on, the one that is, tell them ho-on has sent you. So he doesn't, in the Greek, 
ego in me of the Exodus story, ego in me isn't the standalone divine declaration. It's ho own. Um, so there are other places maybe in the Old Testament that you can go maybe uh, second Isaiah for some of the I am stuff. But um, I think that most people hear that as an allusion to uh, to Exodus three. And it's it might not be um, it. it for if somebody was using the Septuagint, it wouldn't be. Um, the other thing, Egoimi appears three times in Mark's gospel. Um, the last time is at the uh, um, at the trial, where they say, "Are you the Christ, the Son of the Living God?" Um, so there's your or the Son of the Blessed. Sorry, the Son of the Blessed. Cause they're, they're not. They don't say God to avoid the blasphemy thing. Um, and so it's about, "Are you the Messiah?" the the son of you know, the son of God, i.e. the the Messiah, and Jesus says, "Go in me, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming uh, on the clouds of glory." So, he, um, I am identifies him as Christ. Uh, it is a self claim there. It is uh, associated with his enthronement to God's right hand, which is this kind of somewhat greater than David. Christ figure, um, you know, from Psalm 110, uh, it's associated with the son of man saying, which, uh, it, it takes a long time to get there, but I argue is an idealized human, uh, figure. Uh, so I, I think that that gives us a little bit of an interpretive grid for thinking about what I am means in Mark's gospel. Um, the, the other place where I am appears is in chapter 13, where, uh, Jesus says, beware many false Christs will come saying, egoing me. So it's in those latter two instances, it's a Christological claim, not a, not a divine claim, uh, I would, I would argue. Um, so there's, there's those things, um, there, I do agree that, um, the, the Jesus passing them, intending to pass them by, you know, I, I can see the draw of the, uh, of the Job text. Um, but, Another thing that happens in there is at the end, Mark says they didn't understand or they were terrified because they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So um, the walking on water scene has to be interpreted with the feeding of the 5,000 that immediately precedes it. Um, so then that, that gets me into this larger question of what's the feeding of the, what's going on in the feeding of the 5,000. It is right after the, Mark tells the story of Herod beheading John. Then Jesus and disciples come back from their mission and they try to get away. And when Jesus sees the people who had kind of chase after them, he feels compassion on them because they're like sheep who don't have a shepherd. Um, so I think juxtaposed with the Herod story, it's about what kind of shepherd is Jesus for this people. Um, it's about being the right kind of king, ultimately, um, but uh, caring for this people. And so he teaches them many things, and then he um, he has the disciples feed the 5,000 uh, with the bread. So there's... Uh, there's so much going on. There's Moses Christ, you know, typology here. Um, there's uh, an empowerment of the disciples themselves. Uh, I think that there is actually a running echo of Psalm 23, which again might play to the Richard Hayes point of, you know, well, here's a Psalm that talks about God, but um, he, this is the Lord Jesus who shepherds this people, make sure they're not going to want by feeding them. He has them lie down in green grass. Um, 
Mark calls the grass green, uh, and uh, he's going to lead his disciples on still waters. Uh, that's kind of what what ends up happening in that that latter scene. Um, so yeah, again, you so it it, it kind of puts you in this circular question of all right, if I already have the divine Christology, then this fits like Jesus playing the role of Yahweh. If I have this really exalted David or royal Christology, where the king plays the role of Yahweh, like in Psalm 89, then all of these things are Jesus showing that he is empowered to be the 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 caring, ruling presence of God who's going to take care of his people and, and lead them where they should go. Um, the Yeah, I, I think being led—anyway, I, I think the geography of leadership and following is really important in Mark, um, that— Part of the problem with the people is they run ahead of Jesus, right? And he's the shepherd, so he's he should be like guiding them, and they should be following him. And I think that Jesus is trying to reset that positioning um, with the disciples going across the lake as well. So um, anyway, there's I think there's there's just a lot going on there, and I mean, it, and here's one more thing that I'll say about um, Richard Hayes's project is. He makes a lot of claims about, well, here's a passage that's talking about Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's applied to Jesus here. So for, you know, a Jew, obviously that's going to mean Jesus is Yahweh. Well, there are other Jewish people applied Yahweh texts to their heroes. Um, in Qumran, there is uh, the talk about the day of Melchizedek's favor. All right. So you know, it's a Yahweh text about the day of the Lord's favor that is read as being embodied in their hero. Uh, and you know, there are there are a couple other places um, where that's uh, similar things happen, and actually there's even more that I you know, don't have my fingers on that Crispin Fletcher Louis talks about in his new book on Christology. So um, uh, again, for me, so much of how we read it is developed from our expectations of what a text can or can't say about uh, a human figure, and the other question of how do we know, like how would we know a a person is being depicted as God or Israel's God in a text when we saw it? And that's where I don't think that there's been a great answer given yet by the <laughs> early high Christology people. Do, do you think it's fair to say that <clears throat> in a number of these cases— where they seem to walk a line and could sort of fall over either direction toward a divine Christology or an exalted human Christology, that the text is simply underdetermined. And depending on where you're reading from, so if you're a Matthean reader who is worshiping Jesus as Lord, then you might receive it or hear it as Jesus is uniquely identified with God, whereas your average Jewish reader, let's say who's not a Jesus follower or something like that, might hear it against the backdrop of Melchizedek. And so so it, it, I, I wonder sometimes if, if it depends on where you're sitting, mm-hmm. uh, which community you're in. Yeah, I think that's right, um, in part because I noticed that it's only Christian New Testament scholars who are arguing for early high Christology, early divine Christology. And I don't think that's an accident. Um, and Daniel Boyarin. <laughs> and Daniel Boyarin. That's right. <laughs> that's, fair enough. Uh, fair enough. The, the other text that for me is, is really significant is in Matthew, when Jesus is 
with his disciples, and they pluck grain on the Sabbath, and the, uh-huh. and the, and the Pharisees pop up out of the field, out of nowhere, and say, <laughs> hey, what are you doing? And then uh, it, it goes on to talk about how you know David even fed his, his workers, but then Jesus says the, the priests even take from the loaves in the temple, but yet something greater than the temple is here. Mm. So, I mean, to my ears, again, maybe this is where I sit as a reader, where I hear greater than the temple, what's greater than the temple except God, and Jesus is through his ministry, in a sense, um, his workers become like the priests in the temple because he's God among us, mm-hmm. uh, God with us, to, to use Matthew's term. How, how would you read that text, and is this a sort of uh, difficult one for your thesis? Um. Uh, I, I thought you were going to go to a, to a more difficult one for my thesis, so I'm a little relieved. Uh, I, I, uh, okay, so right, so the the, um, the priests in the in the temple break the Sabbath right by by working, uh, but but one greater than the the temple is here. You know, I think in both of the grain in both Mark's and Matthew's grain plucking story, the point is that there are certain kinds of people in certain contexts who. C- who become the reason for which breaking the law is okay, uh, right? I mean, the David story, how is that a precedent except that David did something that was illegal that got the priest and his family slaughtered? Like, way to go! <laughs> um, and that's like that's an argument for what you're doing. Um, but Jesus is saying, well, you know, I think uh, claiming to a messianic authority there. Uh, and to say— that something greater than the temple is here. Um, you know, we, we talked about the, the the contest between Jesus and the temple in forgiving sins, right? So, you know, the idea that, the, yeah, the temple has a role to play among God's people, um, but God has given me an authority outside of that temple that's greater than that temple, um, and that is allowing you know, us to break this law guiltlessly. So you know, I think that Jesus as Messiah and standing in this role of um, determiner of the identity of the people of God, of the one who himself fulfills all righteousness, as the one who puts on display the righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, um, by which we have to adhere to in order to enter the kingdom of God. You know, I think all of these ways that Jesus' authority has been put on display, can all of that can be a, a delegation of the, the presence of God in, in this person, um, even as the temple is, in essence, uh, a proxy of the, the presence of God. So, yeah, I think that there is a—I um, a, think there's a high human Christology for that. Could I ask one more? Because it just—it it came to my mind since we're talking about Jesus in temple, where when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, uh, there I am, because that, that seems to echo the notions of divine presence. Yeah. So if you're gathering in Jesus' name, and that's a, a unique presence of, of Jesus there, I, I think one of the unique things in Jesus' ministry is the degree of self-referentiality that we see, yeah. where he's yeah. constantly pointing to himself, which would seem to distinguish him from the prophets and and other figures that, in a way, are exalted but point away from themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I... Yeah, I think there's something there. There is there is something to that. Uh, yeah, the the Jesus as presence in Matthew. It is one of those themes that um, 
you know, there was more than one time when I was like, you know, Kirk, this this could be Matthew's way of, you know, depicting a, a divine Christ. You've got, you know, the God with us at the beginning. You've got, I'm with you always to the end of the age at the end. And then in the middle, you've got the, where two or three are gathered, I'm there with them. Uh, so, yeah, that is the idea of gathering in Jesus' name and worshiping in his name. That's, you know, that I think that sort of plays into that Hurtado thesis of, you know, a people that are so defined uh, by Jesus. Um, I, I think a, a couple of ways that I play with that claim in the book uh, relate to other figures who claim presence outside of their bodies. Um, the There's, in the Old Testament, there, I forget if it's Elijah or Elisha, um, but his servant goes running up off after um, Naaman the Syrian to to get the money that that Naaman offered, and he comes back and he goes, "Didn't my spirit go with you when you when you went running after him?" Um, and then uh, there's Paul, uh, where a couple of times he says, "You know, like when you're gathered and I'm with you in spirit." Uh, in in First Corinthians, and he does something very similar uh, in Colossians. So you know, there's there's a really interesting, peculiar sort of mystical communion spiritual between you know, prophetic leader figures and these communities that they've founded or that uh, you know, gather in, in worship together uh, where they, they claim uh, some sort of personal presence. Uh, so uh, I think that there is a, I think that there's a spectrum uh, that Jesus claim can fit on uh, even, even for that thing that makes it sound a whole lot like, you know, the, more transcendent um, presence of God. Um, the other thing is that Jesus is also exalted to heaven. So, like, there is something very peculiar about his post-resurrection identity as a human exalted to God's right hand, ruling over the world on God's behalf, uh, that uh, I think maybe is worth, again, more exploration in terms of the identity of the resurrected human Jesus um, and what what sort of awesomeness is entailed in that kind of glorified human figure. Again, that we might be very quick to ascribe to the divinity, um, but if if we stand fast by our shared confessions in the creeds and say that uh, these are not, um, that the divinity and humanity are not separated or divided, um, what does it mean for a... Uh, a human exalted Jesus, God, man, even to be present in uh, a community gathered for worship. What does it mean for the, the man part of that God, man? Like, I think asking that question that you've asked, like forcing yourself to give the answer I'm trying to stumble toward now seems to be something that every Christian should have to do. If we claim even div- divine human and divine, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I think that's right. And a core aspect of the Orthodox confession of Jesus as God human is that Jesus is eternally human. Right. Which which really doesn't get discussed a lot, at least in my biblical study circles, uh, and certainly not in the church. What does it mean for us to worship an eternally human Jesus? So I think that's a, a real challenge that, that comes out of your work. Yeah. So, Well, Daniel, this has been a fun conversation. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with OnScript. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to 
On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Thank you.